0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. Well, as we close out 2023, we're going to look back on one of the biggest entertainment stories of the year. Sort of. Because this year, the world's biggest entertainment company, Disney, turned 100 years old. Our producer, Pete Mitten, has been working on a story about it. He's here with me now. Hi, Pete.
2: Hi, Pia. Happy almost New Year to
1: you. I think we call this, um, we have a term for it, it's uh, Happy New Year's Eve.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, morning time feels like... (laughs) Almost New Year, not New Year's Eve, but fair. Happy New Year's Eve. Uh, So tell me, Pia, what is your relationship with Disney?
1: Oof, that seems like a loaded question. Uh, What is my relationship? Listen, I think, um, hmm, you know, Disney's ubiquitous. Like everyone has a relationship with Disney, whether you want one or not, right? You're in this relationship whether you want it or not. I guess for me, where my head's sort of going to is... um, it was part of the cultural learnings as a kid of immigrants, right? So my parents came over in the late 60s. I was born in the 70s. My sister and I growing up in the prairies with my parents. And Disney was kind of one of these elements that came into our lives, whether it be through Mickey and Minnie or whatever movies were on at the time through Disney, that, I don't know, felt, made us feel, quote unquote, Canadian, North American, whatever part of a world community. So I'd, I'd sort of start there and then I'm Kind of trying to fast forward, like now that I have kids, and I hate to admit this, and I, 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 don't know why I should hate this, Pete, but I, I love Disney. I love everything. I love the movies. Uh, I love going to Disney World. I, you know, when I'm standing in line, I'm like, oh, hate standing in line. Um, I I, 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 want to be the person who hates it in right. some weird ways because maybe I feel gullible to, to love it so much. Like I've been had, or maybe I should just chill out and say, you know what, it's kind of a beautiful thing.
2: Well, it's nice to have it as a beautiful thing in your life, and. I'll admit, to me, that's always been, that Disney fandom, that Disney love has always been a bit of a mystery to me. Hmm. I mean, I grew up, the cartoons were on TV, I definitely have an affinity for Goofy, love that guy, but, <laughs> but my house, we didn't have the merchandise, we didn't have the bed sheets or the toys, really, and critically, we didn't go to Disney World. When I was a little kid, my parents told us that Disney World was closed on March break.
1: Oh, wow. Because, you see,
2: too many people would go otherwise. Mr. and
1: Mrs. Mitten, that was a hard (laughs) lie.
2: And I think I missed a critical window of Disney love there. But now I see my own kids just instant bond with Mickey and Minnie. And as I see the stories about Disney turning 100 in the business pages, I wanted to try to get at what is the secret that's made this company bigger than an entertainment company, bigger than a cultural phenomenon, bigger than anything we really have a word for in the past hundred years. So,
1: This is kind of like trying to unpack the secret sauce of Taylor Swift. I don't know that you'll come up with the answer, but I I look forward to hearing where you sort of go with this, Pete. So in that vein, who'd you talk to to try and unpack this mystery?
2: A lot of experts and people who have written about Disney, but I started with someone who's, I think, an even bigger Disney fan than you are. Hmm.
3: I'm hoping to get a Disney Christmas tree Dad, I actually have all the ornaments. I just have to get another tree. So we're going to have our own Disney Christmas tree at some point.
2: This is Marlene Morris, a conference coordinator at the University of Guelph and a mom of two teenagers. And it's safe to say she loves Disney.
3: I love Disney. (laughs) We've been saving for our next trip for, I think it'll be two and a half years. And we're actually trying to save for California. We're so excited.
2: Disneyland, the original theme park in California, may still be on her bucket list. But how many times have she and her family been to Disney World in Florida?
3: Um, So we've gone to Florida sometimes without going to Disney, which makes me very sad. I remember traveling past the Disney signs. I did not like that. So we've been six times. And then we've been on two Disney cruises.
2: Okay, so Marlene and her family may be Disney superfans. But in a way, we're all living in Disney's world today. It's hard to put into words just how big a deal the world's biggest entertainment company has become in its century of shaping the culture.
4: Perhaps the most recognizable name on the entire planet. The Walt
5: Disney Company at 100 years now owns so much intellectual property that they own many, if not most, of our modern mythologies.
0: It's so embedded in the culture of the world that you don't even realize how much the impact is.
2: Which makes it all the more shocking that as it rings in a century, all is not magical in the Magic Kingdom.
0: As a business, Disney is struggling, to be quite candid. This is Brooks Barnes. I'm a staff writer at the New York Times. I cover the entertainment business. Cable television has been the financial engine for the company for 20 years. That's no longer the case. Streaming is the future, but it's still losing money. Its own
2: streaming service, Disney Plus, has been up and running for a few years now, But
0: it hasn't managed to bridge the gap. It's struggling to figure out where the future of entertainment is going.
2: Which puts it in the same boat as many other media companies today. But Disney isn't other media companies. It hasn't just won the race to be the biggest, richest company in
0: entertainment. It's won another race, too. That race to dominate the imagination.
2: And that may be the much more interesting question. Forget Disney's corporate share price. As it enters its second century in a very different world than it was born in in 1923, can it defend the kingdom it's built in the global imagination? To answer that, let's go back to the beginning.
0: Walt Disney himself, it seems weird just to even say his name. <laughs> the real person, right? Um, but he, he, there was this real focus on how did they do that?
2: as in technological marvels that make you say, how'd they do that? And that begins with the first Mickey Mouse cartoon from 1928. Steamboat Willie didn't just introduce perhaps the world's most recognizable cartoon character. It was the first animation to sync up sound and image, a technological breakthrough at the time. And those marvels continued through Disney's first feature-length animation, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I'm
6: wishing, I'm wishing, for the one I love. Um,
4: I think the, the real magic of, of Disney, especially at the beginning, was that they were not afraid to take risks and and risk-taking really was, like, in their DNA. I mean, Snow White was a movie that every single person said would fail and was a ridiculous idea, because you have to remember, at the time, you know, animated features weren't a thing.
2: Barry Levitt is a Canadian film critic and writer who specializes in Disney.
4: You know, you'd get an animated short for, for maybe 10 minutes before a movie starts, like, a, you know, a live-action movie, and no one thought uh, that animation had any future or really any, any right to be, you know, feature-length.
2: But Disney advanced the art form. The studio pioneered the so-called multiplane camera. This was another technological breakthrough, one that allowed Disney to film multiple moving layers of artworks, creating that captivating sense of depth in their films.
4: Snow White was really the ultimate risk uh, all the way back in 1937. And when that film came out, obviously, if you adjust for inflation, it's still in like, the top 10 all-time box office.
2: But Disney's next move was his boldest, creating a place in the real world where people could touch what they'd seen on the screen.
0: The theme parks are often overlooked, and that is really the secret. You know, when you're a little kid and you go to Disneyland, like, it blows the sprockets off your brain. <laughs> you're not physically able to to comprehend that, I don't think. And there's just something about that that creates this lifelong bond.
2: As you might expect, Marlene Morris has warm and vivid memories of her first trip to a Disney park.
3: Our first uh, Disney trip was in 1986, and I was in grade five. We loaded up in a vintage brown station wagon. Disney World was celebrating their 15th year in operation, and I still remember the theme song. I actually sang it for my family the other day, which they all gave me very strange looks.
2: Now, nearly 30 years later, Marlene's still going to Disney World, even with her teenaged kids.
3: And I was watching some of the other families and reminiscing about when my children were that age and having the strollers and and how much work it was. And I have to say, it wasn't quite as exhausting with teenagers.
2: For Brooks Barnes, this is a major part of Disney's secret to longevity. What that
0: does is create this generational machine where... Children who visited in the 50s brought back their families when they grew up, you know, and and that's continued on.
2: And that generational machine doesn't just generate warm memories and merchandising opportunities. It can create something even bigger in people's lives.
5: Going to the parks to celebrate a special occasion or seeing your kids grow up as they get taller and taller compared with the castle that makes meaning in people's lives, and everyone craves meaning.
2: Jody Eichler-Levine is a professor of religion at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and she studies Disney.
5: I actually think that Disney is just like Burning Man and sports and every other site of modern meaning-making um, that has become really important for humans.
2: Which explains why... Disney is investing heavily in those parks. Here's Brooks Barnes.
0: Uh, one of the things that they just announced is $60 billion, billion with a B, in spending a lot of that overseas, where the parks like Shanghai, Disneyland is, is about 10 years old. So if you think about what in 50 years might that behold for that market, that generational pull, it's pretty mind-blowing.
2: Disney does face an interesting problem today, though. It's simply harder to blow kids' minds now than it was in 1986, on Marlene's first trip, or in 1955, when the first park opened. Childhood itself is changing.
0: You know, it's this interesting question about can Disney keep us entertained at its parks, especially children, you know? Forever and ever, the animatronic robots at It's a Small World or Pirates of the Caribbean you know, if you were young enough, it seemed real, right? As technology and and just you know, kids are savvier than ever. The age at which that those set pieces seem real is lower and lower.
2: Still, though, when that Disney magic hits, it has a special kind of power. Here's Jody Eichler Levine.
5: What Disney calls magic. I think is very close to religion. I kind of joke it's every religion everywhere all at once. And what we see in the ways that people are making sense of their lives and their identity through the films is real.
2: That's something Henry Giroux, a professor of education at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, would agree with. In a way.
6: Disney is iconic. It's godlike. Disney is like a religious cult.
2: Giroux got interested in Disney after seeing his own kids watching the movies. And he's come to see it as this massive corporation that very cleverly hides behind what he calls a cloak of innocence. All the while pushing a very consumerist message on kids.
6: Because, you know, first and foremost, Disney's a corporation. You know, fantasy becomes a market strategy. It harnesses the imagination, the name of consumerism. It's a $174 billion company. Speaking
2: ill of Mickey, though, is not always a popular message, as Henry Giroux found when he started giving lectures on the topic.
6: And honestly, people would stand up, Peter, in the audience, and they would begin. They'd say, I love Disney. Disney's my family. Disney holds my family together. They would open their shirts, the men, and they would have a huge... Uh, tattoos of Mickey Mouse. And as for those parks? Everything is pre-planned. You don't have to think. You go to Disneyland or Disney World, and there are spots where you can take pictures. You're maneuvered around. I mean, it's a world of utter regulation steeped in nostalgia and steeped in a relatively false celebration of what's best for children.
2: Which brings us to another secret of Disney's century of success... It's promise of a family-friendly escape from reality and reality's controversies. Or at least it's always appeared to offer that. Here's Brooks
0: Barnes. Disney forever and ever and ever and ever has really tried to avoid controversy.
2: It's done that in part by literally and figuratively putting a big gate around its fantasy kingdom to keep the real world at bay. Though that's been changing.
0: Starting about 10 years ago, there was a, a decision inside the company that in cartoons, they no longer needed to steer away so much from uh, same-sex relationships, for example. Um, you could show you know lesbian moms because their research showed the kids didn't care and most of the audience approved of same-sex relationships. And so in making that shift, in trying to uh, stay relevant and depict the world as it is, in the fantasy, in cartoons, Disney stepped into this cultural debate that is, has sort of roiled the brand and is is continuing to threaten it.
2: Now that's on full display today in Florida, where Disney may be the state's biggest employer, but it's locked in a battle with the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis.
0: You know, we signed the, the Parents' Rights in Education bill. It's interesting when, like, A Disney-owned ABC...
2: All started with a bill signed into law last year limiting classroom teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity.
0: Disney went against the governor of Florida and said, you know, this law that critics have called Don't Say Gay is wrong and we're going to work to uh, have it appealed. The governor flipped out, (laughs) uh, to use the official term,
4: My job is not to kowtow to some woke corporation in Burbank, California.
0: And went about punishing the company very overtly. It wasn't subtle. He was was quite direct about it. In taking away this sort of special government structure that has allowed Disney to uh, control the growth and government operations at Disney World.
2: Disney has fought back, launching its own free speech lawsuit against the state. But no matter what happens in the courts, the company's image as a fantasy land is wearing thin, which is actually nothing new, if you ask Jody Eichler Levine.
5: Disney's always been enmeshed in politics and the real world. So, for example, going all the way back to the Three Little Pigs uh, cartoon contained an anti Semitic peddler stereotype. Um, various groups objected. As early as the 1940s, animators went in and redid the scene to change it, right, due to objectives to the stereotype.
2: Disney has curated its own version of the company's history for its 100th anniversary in an exhibition that's traveled across the United States and Canada. They did not, however, respond to an interview request. However you see the company's recent history Brooks
0: Barnes is clear on the upshot. The Disney brand is at a more precarious place than it has been certainly in memory, maybe ever.
2: To look at what Disney's done as a corporation in the 21st century, its plan for continued dominance of the global imagination would appear to come down to this. Gobble up as many other entertainment companies and their intellectual property as possible.
4: Uh, you know, they, they picked up Pixar in 2006, and then they picked up uh, Marvel, I think, in 2010. Uh, and then Star Wars, or Lucasfilm, or Arts they picked up, uh, which contained Star Wars. And then, you know, they just, and then they got Fox. You know, they've, they've, they've acquired so much, they've become almost, like, too big. Uh, and I don't think they really have the, the kind of direction that they used to.
2: Film critic Barry Levitt does have an idea for how Disney can find its North Star again, though. And it's not by focusing exclusively on its heroes, like Mickey Mouse. Instead, he says, look to the villains.
4: These great, colorful, flamboyant, terrifying um, villains that like seep into your mind and you think about so much more than you think about, you know, you think about Captain Hook more than Peter Pan. You think about Ursula more than you think about Ariel.
0: Before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, She shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. Oh
4: no! You know, you certainly think about Maleficent uh, in Sleeping Beauty more than you do the titular character who I think has 14 lines. Um, You know, it's it's these villains that really define who Disney is and, and no studio has ever made villains as consistently interesting.
2: But those signature Disney villains have been missing in action.
4: If you look at the last... 10 movies that disney have made uh, which are strange world Encanto, ryan the last dragon frozen 2 ralph breaks the internet moana zootopia big hero 6 frozen wreck it ralph unless you're like an obsessive and know those films inside and out you probably couldn't name more than one if even one villain from any of those Uh, most of them don't have villains they've kind of gone in a new direction of uh, the environment is the villain or, or society is the villain.
2: And it's not just the villains that he and legions of other Disney fans are missing. It's that where there's a great villain, there tends to be a great
4: story. When you have a villain, you have something to root against, and you, know, you have someone to root for because they're trying to fight the villain, and, and you, know, you want to stop whatever the villain is doing.
2: And that's been Disney's key way to hold on to our imaginations for a century. Even without the technological innovations, the theme parks, or the merchandising, the key to the past and future is story. As Jody Eichler-Levine sums it up,
5: Disney matters because stories matter.
2: It's something the company has lost sight
0: of a few times in its first century, according to Brooks Barnes. When it's lost its way, and it has a couple times, that has really been when a new generation of of leaders have come in and shifted the focus more to growth at any cost and a financial performance and pushed to the side storytelling. Great
2: stories – Stories that mix light and dark, that delight as well as scare, are the company's foundation. Here's Barry Levitt.
4: Bambi, which was their fifth movie, you know, has one of the most devastating deaths imaginable. Um, and Dumbo gets very dark as well. You kind of see in that a willingness to take risks that you don't see now. There's a real sense of safety.
2: Which brings us to Wish.
3: Last night, I made a wish on a star. And the star answered.
2: Disney's flagpole... 100th anniversary animated film released this fall with nods to many of its classics sprinkled throughout the film. Alas, it's been met with less than stellar reviews. According to several critics, the storytelling is fumbled and its villain, the first potentially formidable one in years, falls flat. But there's always the next movie, right? Here's Jody Eichler-Levine.
5: It's a curious moment. I wouldn't be completely optimistic about the future of Disney, but I think they're going to adapt. They've adapted to every kind of technological change in storytelling that's come along, right? Going from the first sound cartoons to streaming and now they're investigating, you know, various kinds of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the next generation of of robots in the parks of audio animatronics in the parks
2: as she says, it's a curious moment in a lot of ways. The world we live in is Disney's own creation, but that world keeps changing fast and Disney needs to fight to defend the castle. It's built. It does have one more secret weapon though. Here's Brooks Barnes.
0: Yeah. I mean, for the, there are people who go to the Disney world and literally start crying when they see Cinderella's castle. And I'm talking about adults. (laughs) You know, weeping with joy.
2: Disney's grip on our imagination is being tested at 100. But for generations of fans like Marlene Morris, Mickey and company still have a firm hold on their hearts.
3: It is indeed for me the happiest place in the world. And I truly hope that my own children will continue to carry the love of Disney to the next generation. And maybe I'll be there as a grandma someday, but not for quite a few years.
1: That documentary was made by Pete Minton, who's a producer here on The Sunday Magazine. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca/slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday.